as I'm sure you're all aware in your news feeds, um, man, this weekend's just been full of uh, just some hard, hard news of just seeing another conflict break out uh, in this world. And um, I, I was saying I am not a geopolitical expert. I'm not going to even try to talk more about that other than just to state uh, as the church that loves God and loves this world and wants to see people um, uh, safe and hear the, the, the good news of the gospel that, uh, man, war is just, um, it's awful. And it really points to what we're going to talk about this morning, uh, not connected, but Man, what does it look like to be in God's kingdom? And we just long for that. Because I just want to pray uh, right now for, for that and just for wisdom for those who are involved with that, for safety for those. I know some in this room are probably affected by what's going on right now, just as it is with the, the, the war in Russia and Ukraine. And so uh, just a lot going on in our world. And just want to submit that to the Lord and um, just ask for his, um, for his wisdom to... Um, to reign in the leadership of those uh, all around this world. God, we just come to you this morning, and uh, Lord, as we've already just confessed our, our need for you and our gratitude for what you've done for us in Jesus, as we've sung these songs and even just praised your name by singing the doxology, um, all blessings and glory and honor are due to you. And yet, Father, we live in a broken world, and it's not lost on you. We know you know that, and that's why you sent your son, Jesus. And so as we just get the news this week again of just another conflict, another war of, of death that is occurring, uh, and Lord, we know that happens all over the globe, and even in our own country, in our own community. Father, we just, we, just, we just ache. We long for your kingdom to be realized here on earth. So Jesus, we pray in the midst of this, Lord, that you would give wisdom to the leaders that you have called in the governments that are engaged in all of these different things that are going on. And, and Lord, we pray for peace, God. But Father, we know that ultimate peace is only found in Christ. And so to that end, God, we continue to pray and commit our lives to give ourselves for the sharing of the good news of Jesus to this world that is literally dying, uh, Father, apart from you. And so, Lord, would your kingdom be made uh, on earth that is, is in heaven? And so, Father, we just pray that and we ask that. We pray your protection over innocent lives uh, on all sides, God. Uh, but, Father, we, we, uh, we, we look to you this morning in this. And just as another way of God, we are in desperate need of your rule in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in the book of James, so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn and just kind of put your finger there in James chapter 4. We're finishing up James chapter 4, and then we're going to move into the very last chapter of James. We're almost done with James, so uh, we're going to move into the first part of chapter 5, and we just have like a little bit more, and then we're done with the book of James. But as I was reading this this week, I was reminded of my family. And we had a birthday party. I have three kids. And there was a birthday party. And it was a couple years back. And I'm going to save, save names because I don't want to say any names now as they've gotten a little bit older. They, they would, so one of our kids was having a birthday party. And I just want to say this too. Birthday parties at the Snyder House are awesome only because I'm just a part of it. It's not has anything to do with me. My wife, Stacey, makes birthdays just really awesome. She's super thoughtful with our kids, with me. She decorates the house. She puts notes up. She's just really, really awesome about that. That was not how I grew up. And so she's brought something into the family that has just been a real, real fun thing. And it's been actually cool because my kids are now like her. So anybody's birthday, they'll kind of mimic her. They'll put notes up around the house and say, happy birthday, daddy. Happy birthday, Brindley. You know, they'll, they'll do that too. So it's really been, been fun to see that. So she's really thoughtful. Birthday party for this kid is going great. It's just an awesome birthday party. Kids that are there and our kids are enjoying the birthday party. And then if you're a parent, you'll kind of maybe know where I'm going with this. Then they went to the birthday presents. And all kids, fairly excited, especially the kids getting the presents. Joy on their face, smiling with all the other kids. But as presents started to get open, we noticed in one of our children, this, this grin start to change. And it started to turn into more of like a frown. And then it just turned into just this deep, like the hands like this and face like this, and just very obvious that there was just some displeasure with what was now occurring. Now, if you have kids, I'm sure you've never experienced something like that, right? 
So we waited until after the birthday party, everybody leaves, and we finally have this, our parents, we're trying to be good parents, you know what I mean? We're trying to like, go, okay, like, hey, we're going to address this. We're just going to, hey, we saw you. We want to just go, hey, what's going on? What's wrong? And you kind of like, we kind of know what's wrong, but let's, do you know what's wrong? Let's kind of pull this out of you a bit. Like, hey, what's wrong? And like, nothing. You're like, okay. okay. What's wrong? And finally, it came out, and it was just like, they got presents, and I didn't. I was like, yeah. And so we as good parents tried our best to slowly say, hey, we understand. It can be difficult at times when you're seeing someone else getting presents, but hey, like, who is this about? Well, it's about them, but, and we were like, okay. Now, the, but did you, did you expect, we, our expectation was that our kids would go like, mom, dad, you know what, you're right, you told us, it's not about me, it's about my brother or my sister, and you know what, like, I just realized I was just having a pity party, and I was really being selfish. Like, that, it's crazy, that's like what we were expecting. Did anybody else, like, did any of your other kids, like, ever say that to you? Like, I, mom, dad, I'm sorry, you're, you're, you're right, I, I just really stunk it up in there. Any kids do that? Okay, we're not alone in that? Okay. And, and so I was just thinking about this in light of our text this morning. Like this disposition for each of us. Like that's a natural tendency for all of us, isn't it? This, this idea that like, man, like it's got to be, what about me? Me. Like I'm the center of attention here. Even though it's my sister or my brother's birthday party. And I thought that's just really similar to the human condition. All of us in some way, shape, or form. I think can struggle with that, with whatever's going on. And I don't need to name examples of that. I think we're all familiar with this. And see, what James is going to do this morning, in light of that disposition that is in all of humanity, Christian or non-Christian alike, James is going to continue to give some stark warnings to you and me this morning. And what he is going to say is, look, we, the, the disposition of the human heart is to be in control. That we want to be in control. We want things to go the way we think they should go. And that's going to work itself out in two very, very specific ways that James is going to show us in our text this morning. He's going to say, listen, the Christian is meant to build God's kingdom, but it's really hard because we're tempted to build our own. And two of the ways he's going to show us that that works itself out is that we put our trust in ourself and we put our trust in our wealth. Those are the two things that James is going to press on us this morning. James, as you know, if you've been with us for any part of this past year, Alan has given me the opportunity just to preach through the entire book of James. And so James, what I've, what I've been kind of saying James is all about, James is all about dirty theology. It's kind of the, the, the language I've loved as I've studied this book over this past year. And what I mean by dirty theology is this. It's that, that, that James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who used to be in Jerusalem where they, they were living, life was good, and then as they put their faith in Jesus, all of a sudden they're facing persecution and they've become displaced. And so he addresses this letter to a group of people that are scattered throughout all of Judea, Samaria, and all over. They used to be in Jerusalem and now they're all spread out. And a lot of that, as we understand in the context of the first century, is because they've been persecuted for their faith. Things are happening in their hometown that has had to force them to leave. They've lost jobs. They've been persecuted for believing in Jesus now, and it goes against their Jewish tradition. And so James is writing a very very, very practical letter to this church all over. And he's saying, listen, your faith is like a pair of shoes. Now, James doesn't say it that way. That's my words. But see, it's so practical because what James is trying to convey to all of his churches that he's responsible for and to you and me today as the readers of this is he's saying just like a pair of shoes your faith in God is meant to get dirty which is why it's such a practical letter in every way James is like straight to the point. If you've been with us, you're kind of probably following this. He just gets straight after. He says, do this, don't do that. Your faith looks like this. You got to do this. You got to do this. It's all these very specific things. And he's doing that because I think what he's saying, he's just like shoes, faith is going to live in life in such a way that it's going to start to rub up against your sin nature. 
And the way of God, God's kingdom, God's kingdom, the way Jesus wants us to live, to trust and obey him, is going to require us at times to get a little dirty. It's not always clean. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we're going to hit suffering. It's not if, it's just when. And James hits that in his letter. He's writing to people. He's telling them, this, it's going to get dirty. Your faith is going to hit suffering. And what's going to happen then? Your faith is going to hit things of when you're going to be tempted to be selfish and show partiality. And things like racism, things like that are going to crop up into this world. He's going to say, is that how God's kingdom is? Or is this how your kingdom is supposed to be? Like, it's a little dirty, doesn't it? It starts to press in against us a bit. And he's trying to show us, I believe, good news that our faith is meant, just like our shoes, to walk around in and get scuffed up and dirty. It's meant to do that. Suffering, doubts, fears, that does not show that you're an immature Christian. It shows that you're a true follower of Jesus living in a world that is marred by sin. And so James is all about practically what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so that's where we find ourselves all the way up into James 4, verse 13. And that's where we're going to be today. And he's going to continue in this pattern. Just getting straight after. What does it look like to follow Jesus? So we're going to look at those two ways that it can look like we build our kingdom instead of God's kingdom as he continues this train of thought. So we're going to look at what does it look like uh, when we trust ourselves and when we trust our wealth. So if you have your Bible, it's going to be on the screen as well behind me. I'm going to read James 4, 13 through 17. We're just going to start there. James 4, 13 through 17. And this first section is really going to be, if you're organizing your notes or anything like that, this is what is it, what does trust in self look like? James says this, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, it's super important to remember where we are as we jump into this. At the beginning of chapter 4, if you have your Bible with you, you can scroll up or down, however you do, or flip over to the left in James chapter 4, and you'll see that James has just warned his readers, he's just warned you and me against worldliness, against building our kingdom, which is a continued thought that he's building on here today. And he says, if you look at that in James chapter 4, verse 4, he said that our passions are at war within us. We desire and don't have, so we murder, we covet, and so we fight and quarrel. And we ask God for things, but don't receive them because we ask wrongly to spend it on our own passions. And see, what I think James is doing here is he's giving us three specific characteristics that show what trust in self looks like. All right? The first is this overstated self-assurance. That you and I would have this deep, deep abiding confidence that I can figure this thing out, whatever it is. All right, look at this. Look back at that. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. This is the first characteristic of trust in self, is it not? The primary confidence that James is laying out for us is on display with the assurance that we are guaranteed tomorrow. But the text continues, not just tomorrow, but even a year from now. The presumption that James is highlighting isn't the fact that, hey, you're making plans and that's bad. That's really important for us, I think, as we read it. Is he saying, hey, man, like, is it bad that we make plans? I'm a business guy. I'm a businesswoman. Like, whatever the thing is, I'm a a, a mom. I'm a dad. Like, hey, I'm making plans. I have retirement. I have things. Is, Is James highlighting that that is what the problem is? No, he's not. Planning clearly is prescribed by our scriptures over and over again. In fact, in Proverbs 21, 5, it says this, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. So we know that planning isn't what James is getting at here. 
James is showing us that it's actually what's behind that planning. It's where your trust lies. It's the attitude behind it. Who is in control of tomorrow? Is it you? Is it me? Or is it someone else? The attitude behind the planning is based on an overstated confidence, a trust in one's self. The second characteristic we see is a trust in one's desire, okay? We've already said, this is a person who's just already stating like, hey, I'm going here, I might spend a day or two, I might spend a year in there, I'm gonna make a profit. I'm, gar- I'm pretty, gar- pretty sure I'm guaranteed that. And so here's the other thing I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do something. Here's my desire. My desire is to make a profit. And so the idea of a trust in oneself also is predicated by a trust in the desires that I have. Now hang with me for a second. Here's what I mean by that. Jeremiah 17.9 tells you and me that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the prophet Jeremiah speaking to Israel. And here we see, contrasted with James, stark warning to this person who's making these broad statements. He's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. How are you even able to trust the desires that you have are right and good? There's no speed bump here for this person in James. And so what he's saying, the warning is, this is a person who's absolutely sure where they're headed and that what they're aiming for is best. No questions to ask. And again, this is the attitude that James is getting at behind this sort of planning and the desired outcome. It's entirely based on a trust in oneself. Because is money inherently bad? Is profit bad? Is that what James is saying? Absolutely not. That would be a misinterpretation of this text, and especially the next part that we're going to read, which is still an even greater warning. No, it's who is in control that James is highlighting with surgical precision to say, how would you make a statement like that? And the third characteristic of what trust in oneself looks like is You forget eternity. You don't remember. You don't have eternity in view. This is a person who's so sure of themselves, so sure of their desires, and they're so sure that what needs to be done has to get done right now that has no view of a future of God's provision and ultimate consummation of where he makes all things good and right. This is a person completely focused on themselves only looking from day to day of what they believe they need on their own terms. And what does James say to this? What's James' response to this? He asks the question, what is your life? What is my life? All over the scriptures, this question is posed to us in negative ways and in really positive ways. But James says, what is your life for you He answers his own question. For you and me, we are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The Greek word here, atmos, is is, is, not this prolonged mist that you might see in the morning when you're driving your car if you're up early. I don't know what that's like because I don't get up that early. I've told it's really awesome, but it's really dense fog that lasts for a little while. That is not what this Greek word is aiming at at all. In fact, what this is, it's like if you if your kids blow their breath on the windows and stuff like that, it's, it, that's what it's talking about. It's like that quick, you see the breath on the window and then it immediately vanishes. And that is what James says. You who say that, that is what your life is like. A mist. Here today and then gone tomorrow. Instead, James gives us a little bit of counsel here. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now, real quick, with verse 15. If you've been around the church for a while, you might have heard some people who will say this. And I'm, I don't want to, like, knock anybody on this, but this is not what James means. James doesn't mean that you simply make a statement, and therefore there's some magical thing that happens if we just say, like, hey, next week we're going to preach if the Lord wills. And then all of a sudden, that's getting at what James says. It's not just this magic saying. I've I've heard there's someone in my family who used to always say that. And we'd always be like, like, 
the, the question James is going, no, no, behind this saying is a posture and an attitude of going, no, I'm not in control of this. The Lord is in control of this. And so if God wills that I will be able to be here next week, then I will gladly be able to do what he has me to do or the things that I would long to do if that's his will. There's a stark difference what James is getting at with even saying what we should say He's not getting at just, wait, this is the thing we need to say. This is what's supposed to come from a heart that's committed and trusting in God. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this and do that. But again, James is hammering and warning you and I. What does it look like? But instead, we boast in our arrogance. These people, they're boasting in their arrogance. And James says, all such boasting is evil. It's really interesting because if you think about that, is all boasting evil? Well, no, because Paul would actually say there are things we're supposed to boast in. We're supposed to boast in our weakness. We're supposed to boast in the glory of Jesus Christ. But this boasting has nothing to do with Christ, has nothing to do with our weakness. Instead, it has everything to do with this idea that I am in control and I am the one that dictates and governs my life. And that sort of boasting, friends, is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. James just kind of finishes off this section just kind of really quickly. And what's, what's that there for? This is kind of an, an ending for him to basically say, listen, you guys, like, hey, as followers of Jesus, as you look what it means to follow God's kingdom, you know that there are things that God wants us to do. And because you know them, and just because you know them isn't enough. If you fail to do them, it's sin. Again, going back to who is in control, you or God? Moving to the second part of our text this morning, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We're going to see, okay, we looked at how James is warning us about what trust in self looks like. And now we're going to look at what trust in wealth looks like. And these two are connected because when we trust in our lives, when we live for our kingdom, it's going to show up in how we spend our money. Is it not? You've probably heard this before. Like if you opened up your checking account, it'd be a good indication of the things that you value, Right? And that is a, that is a, I think that's a true statement, just objectively, Christian or non-Christian. If you open up your checking account, where we spend our money is going to show what we value and think is most important. And this is what James is getting at. Trust and wealth, James shows us, is also going to have three characteristics that I want us to see. So let's look at this first verse and read these few verses ahead. James 5, chapter 1. They'll be on the screen as well. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Just going to stop real fast right there. James and many, many scholars would say that he has held off his most stinging rebukes for this section right here. And as we read these words, this is not language that you and I would necessarily be familiar with. We don't really talk this way. We don't hear people talk this way. But he says, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And the interesting thing that we see right away, just that first line, and in the preceding verses, sorry, in the verses that are coming ahead, there's going to be no reprieve here. James is not going to let this one off the hook. Instead, as these commentators have said, his most stinging critique and rebukes are found right here. This is coming, not if, but when. And I just want to also say what he's having in view is not necessarily this week or this month, but he has in view the judgment of God himself is coming. And as we read the rest of it, he's going to say, you've gotten what you wanted. The first characteristic, I think, of trust and wealth that James shows us is that there's a hoarding of one's wealth, of one's money. In verse 3, we see that. 
Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Accumulated wealth is what we're seeing here. And the picture here is this wealth is stored up. And here's the crazy part about it, right? And I think this is something that we're familiar with. Most people, myself included, I'll put myself here. I want to build up my savings accounts because I want to avoid disaster or prepare for one. But you know what James does? That he says the very thing that you're preparing for and this wealth that you've hoarded for yourself, that thing that you are preparing to, 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 to defend yourself against is going to be the very means of your destruction and your ruin. Isn't that interesting? The very thing that we think will protect us is the very means by which it will damn us. Stinging rebuke, a stinging warning for all of us in this room, not just the rich in money. It's all of us, this hoarding of one's wealth. It's the very thing they hoped to avoid was the very thing that was going to bring about their own destruction. Another part of this is this hoarding is just to be seen as wasted. Again, we're talking about the kingdom of God, and we're talking about our kingdom. And in our kingdom, I need to have all of the money. I need to have all of the things. I need to have all of the just in cases, all of that, because it's just in case, just in case. And guess what? I'm start, I naturally go like this. God's kingdom, James is saying, looks so much different. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But the very thing that wealth is meant to be in God's kingdom is something that is then used to give to other people, not hoarded for oneself. And so he says, it's wasted. Your garments, they rot. What good are they, he says. And yet it's the very thing, if you and I are honest in our heart of hearts, it's the very thing that we think is most important. I'll be the first to say, there's things that I, I prize deeply and would be very upset about if they were ruined like James is talking about. Because there's some aspects of, I need to ask the question, is my hope put in these things? Part of hoarding one's wealth is a wasting of resources for the kingdom of God and for those around us. Not merely just to improve my lifestyle and your lifestyle. The second characteristic of trust and wealth looks like this. It deprives those around you. This is already connected, right? It says in verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this is written to a primarily agrarian society, meaning there were wealthy, wealthy landowners who had a lot of land. And these farmers were having to hire themselves out to these wealthy landowners to work and to make money. And yet these landowners were depriving these very people who were working their fields and their farms of their wages. Trust in one's wealth shows up in how we deprive others of what is rightfully theirs because we're most concerned about ourselves. It would have literally been in that day and age that some farmers, if they didn't get paid, they couldn't feed their family. And that's a little hard for us in this society, especially in Northern Virginia. I don't know a lot of people that if they don't have a meal tonight, that they will die of starvation. There's still so much for us, and that's not a let us off the hook, but that's just the context that James is writing to. He's saying, look what trust and wealth does. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15, and it's right behind us. I want us to see this again, just to understand this context a little bit more. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 15 says this. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. That helps us see the context of what James says. Trust in one's wealth shows up in a deprivation towards those around us, even when they've worked your very land that you own. And the third characteristic of 
trust and wealth, I think we see is in verse five, and it's this, it's self-indulgent. Verse five, read with me. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Strong, strong rebuke here. In that day and age, murder wasn't necessarily that they actively killed someone, but it was the deprivation of what someone needed, i.e. the funds that they needed to help pay for food for their family. That is the kind of thing that they would say, like that's that move towards starvation and that withholding from people who then starve, that that is, that, that he used that as they said, that's murder. And why? Because I want mine. I want more. My trust is in my stuff. It's in my wealth. Even so, I will defraud my very pe- the very people that work for me. He does not resist you. That last line, it's stunning. Even in the court of law, these wealthy people, they could go to the law in the courts at that time and they were even able to win legal arguments against people of not paying them their money because why? They had the means and they were rich. They could do that. And guess what? What did that happen to the poor people? They had no recourse. That's what he says. They, they don't resist you. They can't. They don't have the money. They don't have a lawyer. I can't afford it. So not only have you defrauded them, but your self-indulgence has moved you to push them down so far that you use all your means to continue to push them down further. And so here's our challenge today. (laughs) That's our text. And the question I just want to ask, here's the challenge for you. What What are we to do with this? What is James pressing so hard for here? And he's saying the same thing I've said over and over again. How do we build God's kingdom and not our own? How do we build God's kingdom and not our own? Matthew 6, 19. These are Jesus' words. Jesus says to you and to me, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy Does this sound familiar? And where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, I think what James has done in this morning has been an actual gift to you and me this morning. Yes, is it a hard stinging rebuke? Yes, of course it is. And when received in the way that I believe James intends his readers to to take that in, I think what we see is we get a screening process from James. A screening process. There's going to be a number up on the screen right now. A screening process. I'm just going to leave that up there for a few moments. This number, I think, represents for us the very unique challenge in this day and age. For us to believe what James is saying to us, for us to heed this warning, I believe that this is also evidence of the warning that James gives, but it's very specific to our context this morning. And if Jesus says that we need to store up treasures in heaven, well, the question is, how do we do that? Well, we, not dissimilar to the first century that James is writing in, but there's some differences. We live in a culture that is literally swimming in self-indulgence. The very things that James has lined up as warnings for you and me in these past, this past section is all encapsulated right here. And these are numbers that affect you and me every single day. And this is numbers given to us that have nothing to do with Christianity. 
but it's going to press at the very heart of what James is going after. Who do you live for? Listen to what an advertising specialist had to say. Leave that number up there, please. As an advertising specialist, I've researched to find studies which explain how many ads we see in one day. The data from clinical tests typically ranged from 4,000 to 10,000. Like many, I thought that number sounded a little far-fetched, and I did as well. I didn't believe it. So I thought, I'm going to dedicate an entire day with my job and test this myself. I asked my wife and anyone I thought would contact me not to distract me too much. I wanted to pay keen attention to the direct and indirect advertising impressions I was exposed to. This is an advertising specialist, by the way, who is writing this. As media channels emerge, so do new advertising opportunities. Today, Americans and most folks in modernized countries are bombarded with advertisements. And I'm talking about a tsunami of commercials, print ads, brand labels, Facebook ads, Google ads, ads on your phones, anything a business can do to produce to get your attention and compel you to what? To buy. On my test day, I woke up in the morning to my radio alarm and I heard 14 ads on my local station. Before opening my eyes and hitting the snooze on my Sony clock, clicking on my Sony and Control 4 controllers to fire up my Panasonic TV, the Roku streaming media selection presented about 20 channel options and I instead went to Mediacom and watched and listened to over 46 more TV commercials as I just got I got dressed in my Fruit of a Loom undershirt, big dog shirt, Wrangler jeans, and Adidas shoes. Eleven brand advertisements are within my eyesight, just in my own closet. I'm not digging for them. I opened my pantry, and I counted 214 brand labels, all colorful and professionally created. And I'm not even moving things around in my own pantry, this person says. What? I get out my Kellogg's box of Special K cereal with my Jersey-made milk, and I count 62 product brands looking straight at my face. I opened a drawer displaying six different pod brands of flavors to brew in my Keurig coffee. All total, I've gotten around 487 ad exposures, and I haven't even finished breakfast yet. He ended his experiment right there. And he just extrapolated the data of going like, if I go out, I haven't even looked at my phone yet. He didn't look at the, he didn't go out with all the stuff on the, 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 the metro and all these other places he's done. So then he ends this way. He says, of course, most people won't recall seeing 4,000 to 10,000 messages each day. This is because, listen to this, to keep our sanity, we've developed a screening process that most advertisers are aware of. And so what he goes on to say is he says, listen, they know that we're really only able to take in about 100. 100 of that number. And you know what, Grace Hill, I think that this person is right. I think this is just what James is saying too. Now, they're not coming at it at all in the same spot, but I think what he's saying is, listen, we must develop a screening process for discerning how do we live according to the kingdom of God. Because listen, if that is true, and I just pause it. I just I lay that out to you. If that number is true for us, that is the opposite of what God's kingdom looks like. And that's implicit stuff. That's not stuff we're even fully aware of. And that is just the pool that we're swimming in. And so for us to heed these warnings, I believe what James says and he's pointing us to ultimately is this. And you'll see it on the screen in this verse that in order to develop this screening process, we have to trust a different person. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter six. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And I think if we look back at James 5, 5, we see a key for us. Instead of fattening ourselves for the day of slaughter, we instead need to turn that around, and we need to fatten ourselves on the bread of Christ, which is Christ himself. Jesus is telling us the same thing. In Matthew, he says, store up treasures in heaven, not on earth, but put it where moth and rust won't ruin this treasure, but this treasure isn't possessions for ourselves. It's the resulting blessings that come from living for Jesus, who is the living bread. See, to seek God's kingdom means we seek Jesus, Grace Hill. That may feel like an easy Sunday school answer, but it's the truth for us that we have to be reminded of when we see 4,000 to 10,000 different ads that are going to point us to say, no, trust in yourself. What you need is what you need. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. What I offer you will last forever. See, what we see with Jesus in regards to James' warning is that Jesus is the supremely confident Lord of lords, and yet he's the one who came to what? Serve, not be served. Jesus, even when faced with his own pending unjust death, sought the Father's desires over his own desires. Jesus always had the reality of eternity and God's kingdom in view. In fact, that's what marked him in his whole earthly ministry, was knowing what he was here to do. His eyes were set on the Father and eternity with him. And so to seek God's kingdom means we seek Jesus. And look at Jesus in regards to how he possesses his wealth. Instead of hoarding, Jesus says to you and to me, he says, everything I have is yours. How about that? Everything I have is yours. Instead of depriving those around him, Jesus empowers. He gives us dominion. He gives us authority. He gives us different giftings. All of those things he gives freely to each of us, his church, in order to do his work. How about that? That's different than depriving. He's having to see us. He wants us to thrive. So Jesus views his wealth. And instead of being self-indulgent, Jesus shed his very blood for us. Not just giving us his stuff, but he gave us his very life, his flesh and his blood. He is so generous. He's so sacrificial. He's the opposite of self-indulgent. He is the opposite of what this culture professes and tells us over and over again what we need to be. And so the gospel is the good news of being able to trust a different person rather than trusting in ourselves, in a world that constantly encourages you and me to seek after our own kingdom. But how do we feed on Christ? How, how do we supposed to understand that he's the bread of life? When we feed on Christ as the bread of life, what we're doing is we're learning to trace the beauty of God and his gifts to us back to him. That's what the gospel is. I mentioned earlier that Stacy's really good with birthdays and she gives gifts. And I remember one time I wrote a song. In fact, Melody helped. Uh, Melody and I both wrote a song together at the previous church that we were serving at. And I was just really proud of it. And I was excited. And a couple months later, um, I get a gift from Stacy. And it was a picture of the sound file, the sound, the the wave file of this song that we had written. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that is amazing. 
And I was just thinking about that in light of tracing back God's beauty to what he does for us, to back to him. What does it mean to feed on him? It's the same thing. It was like, man, like I was so thankful for that gift from Stacy. It was so meaningful, so special, so thoughtful. But man, I loved the giver more than I loved the gift. And that's what it means to feed on Christ. Do we really want him or just his stuff? That's James' whole stark warning to us. We see that the gifts and the food that God provides, it's good and it's okay, right? Our competencies and our wealth, those things aren't evil in and of themselves, but when they are traced back to ourselves rather than to Christ, we are feeding on what the world says and Jesus says that will rot and perish versus feeding on Christ and doing those things in light of him and building his kingdom. That will last forever. Jesus even says so much in verse 26. You don't need to turn there. In John, he, he answers people. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill to get your stomachs full. See, I think Jesus knows that there's many of us, maybe even in this room this morning, who struggle with really just wanting what Jesus has and could kind of do without him. So we feed on Christ. But you know, guys, we have to help one another to do that. This is just how God made it. These stark warnings that we get today. Jesus has brought us into this family to pursue his kingdom and to help one another. And that means we've got to help one another feed on Christ. And we've been saying this recently. It's like the gospel plus time and safety equals transformation. And what that means is we've got we to come to each other and ask for help in this area. Like there's no, the Jesus doesn't give three things to say, here's how you do that. He literally says like, like this is all mine. It's all mine. So, so how are you going to steward what is already mine, whether it's your gifts or your money? And I just want to get really practical at the very end here because this isn't in the text. God doesn't say, here's exactly how you do this. But what he does say is he's like, I haven't left you alone. And you need, this needs to be a community effort. And this is really weird in our culture to say something like that. Money, I think even more than sex, is easier to, is, is harder to talk about. I know as a pastor, I'll talk more about sexual immorality with folks than I will about people's money. There's such shame and such independence in this area where we go like, I, yeah, we'll talk about all this stuff, but when you talk about our money, no, 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 no. And listen, I don't say that from a place of strength up here. And I really didn't want to even share this because I'm like, I don't ever want to be, I'm not a hero. This is, so don't, don't look at Evan with this. I'm going to share this as, just a, as, a, as a way I'm trying to grow in this and offer that as a way for us, as a potential way for you. you know, and, and I don't know, maybe y'all have really good ways to follow Christ in this way. But I have a friend who's really good with money and I just said, hey, I'm not. And he did an Excel spreadsheet for me. And this is about seven years ago. And what it was is that initially it was just a way to help me budget my money better. But then what it turned into was like going like, man, hey, I actually need some help. I don't, and I, I must to be honest, when I asked for help, I was really embarrassed because as a pastor, I don't feel like I, I can struggle with feeling like I don't make that much money. Oh, God has been so kind. I don't, I just, I'm being a little, I'm being transparent with you guys. And so what happened is I'm going to this friend who makes a lot more money than me. And I was feeling a little bit like, you know, inferior. And I was like, gosh, I'm embarrassed to show this. And, and I said, finally, I just said, hey, Pat, like, would you just help me with this? And he's like, yeah, dude, I'd love to. And I started to pull stuff. He goes, oh, you don't need to show me that. And I, I just it got to this spot where I was just like, hey, you know what? No, I mean, like, I, need, I just need your help in all of this stuff. Like, am I investing this right? Like, what do I do? I have so little. And I was really embarrassed. And you know what that's done? That's slowly over time become something where he, he, he has access to the this, this, this spreadsheet. And he, he gives me advice on different things over and over again now. But that's been a process for me. And it's, I've had to face some shame about going like, I'm not going to show him that. But it's been really, really good as I've grown in that to be able to ask some questions of like, man, where am I living for myself or where am I living for God's kingdom? And he's done this thing with like the giving part for me where like I have to look at the percentage and or just talking through that. And it does this pie chart that shows here's where all your money's going, dude. And it's been really eye-opening for me. So I just say that. 
And the band's gonna come on up now. I just say that, hey guys, this has to be a community effort with each other to trust God's view of our, ourselves and our own money and our wealth. And I just wanna ask the question, why would you not share that with trusted brothers and sisters? Don't answer that right now. I, just, I, wanna, I wanna lay that on you and go like, hey, why would it be hard to share what you do financially with other brothers and sisters as we heed these warnings? See, what God has done is good. By putting us in a community together, just these last two verses I wanna share and then we're gonna come and we're gonna take of the, the bread and crackers together. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14 says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm. What is he saying there? We need each other in all areas of life, including our wealth. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And I just want to challenge us this morning. What does it look like in sharing your life together in such a way that fights against the shame and the ways that James has already laid out as warnings and rebukes the way the world would live in regards to money and trust in self? I know this is radical. But Jesus says, I am life. Do we believe that? And so we're gonna come to the table this morning. I just want you as you're coming up just to take a few moments as you're either walking up or just even in your chair as you come and you think of Jesus' words. It says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not live. And where are those places where we just don't trust that that's true? that we are actually putting our trust in other things, our wealth, our own ideas of what it means to live in this world. And with that, just start to melt away that hard place in our heart or wherever that hardness is. And we come to the one who freely gave himself to us. That frees us up to trust him and to be generous people in all aspects of our lives, Grace Hill. Father, would you just help us? Father, it's so easy. We just swim in a world that tells us to live for ourselves. Father, we know that you're the only one that has the words of eternal life. So God, we just need your help to trust you. God, forgive us for when we trust ourselves over you. Father, forgive us when we put our trust in our wealth or the pursuit of that, God. Forgive us for where that makes us people who don't show your grace and mercy to those around us, God. And so, Lord, we just come to your table this morning just reminded of the goodness of your grace and your mercy to us, that it's freely given to us this morning, that you're faithful to forgive. What a gift, God. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You can come as you feel led.